Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Unless you've been through it, it's hard to imagine what it would be like to lose a child to drowning, drowning in a family or a neighbor's pool. Our next guests have been through that and are trying to do something about it. Lisa McMullen and her son Birch are with us. Lisa's 22-month-old son and Birch's younger brother drowned at a family pool party more than three decades ago. Also with us, Emily Woodjack is Aquatics and Safety Coordinator at St. Louis University and is active with the National Drowning Prevention Alliance. Stephanie McCormick heads a company called Backyard Lifeguards. That's an aquatic safety company. Thank you all so much for being with us. Nice to have you. A difficult subject to talk about, Lisa. I'll start with you. I know it's still painful after 30 years to have to relive this incident, but I think our audience wants to know what happened. It is. Um, it's nice to remember Nicholas, even yeah. in sad moments. Um, and I feel um, very committed to telling the story because I think it is one that happens all too often. Uh, we had gone up to a place in the country for the weekend, an hour away, and then on Sunday invited other families to come up for a – actually, we invited them to come up for – apple picking because it was September, Mm. but it was a warm September day, so kids went into the pool. And Nicholas got up from his nap. All the kids but one were out of the pool, and somehow he felt in. There were adults there. There were children there. Um, But that's if there's not a designated person to watch, um, you can have a situation like that all too easily. And it happens very fast. Uh, it happens uh, silently, almost invisibly. Um, and so I feel very strongly about sharing that story in order to help other parents avoid that situation. Birch, I've heard this story before about other children. It seems every season we hear a story like this or several stories like this. Yeah, it it. Like my mom said, it happens way too often. Um, it, drowning is actually the number one cause of accidental death for children one to four, uh, and it's that's above car accidents. Um, it's actually about twenty five percent higher than car accidents. So it's it's a, a real safety issue that unfortunately doesn't get the the kind of attention that that a lot of other issues do. Um, Steffi, what kind of options are out there for? Uh, for to avoid things like this? Well, nationally, not that many. Um, but here in St. Louis, I started this company following a drowning in Ladue. Uh, so in 2009, there was a residential pool drowning, and the word on the street as moms were talking as you'd go into the Starbucks or the rec center was, I can't believe those people didn't hire a lifeguard. Mm-hmm. And I've been employed by both the uh, a municipality and by a Y and at no time would we ever consider sending a lifeguard to a private residence for a variety of very legitimate reasons. And so there was this gap here. There were people, um, conscientious homeowners, who knew, hey, this is a situation where I should probably have someone help me with this, with providing dedicated supervision like Lisa referred to, um, but also there wasn't any avenue for them to get that service. And so um, we created... We created an uh, options. We, we, you know, we created a program and uh, and a service um, that has lifeguards who are uh, qualified, insured, um, equipped, um, prepared to deal with a private uh, location. And, and basically, that's 
that's what we want homeowners to know is that when you are operating your home pool as a community pool because you're hosting a party or you're having people over Mm -hmm. and parents and adults are distracted, that you need to provide some of the structure and order that exists in a community pool. And, And, you know, and the gap is further exacerbated by the fact that residential pool owners don't go to community pools. They don't have to. So they don't sometimes know what those things are. So we try and educate at the same time as we supervise. And the name of the organization is Backyard Lifeguards, correct? Backyard Lifeguards. Emily, uh, but what about the person who was not having a party? When a youngster, a toddler, just slips out of the house and uh, somehow manages to get into the pool, the Backyard Lifeguard's not going to be there under those conditions. Right. And it's... um it's all about finding that balance and making sure that you do have some structure and stuff you said in place where, you know, we try to create some barriers. Um, some of those might be pool fences. Um, I think, you know, we've all touched upon supervision is extremely important. Um, making sure that, you know, that pool doesn't go unguarded. Just because we don't believe anyone is in there doesn't mean that no one can get in. Mm-hmm. Um, so having some barriers, some supervision, um, making sure that you have things set in place so if something does happen, um, you are able to respond um, and making sure that, you know, you're comfortable in doing that and knowing that hopefully you never have to have that happen, but if it does, that you're comfortable and able to do so. Birch, I want to come back to you because I think you're probably the one to answer the question. And that is, it seems to me that the first line of defense is to teach even a toddler how to swim. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, yes and no. The the we don't actually teach the children that age to swim in the sort of the, the common understanding. The key for lessons is to teach them survival skills mm-hmm. uh, and specifically how to roll over and float on their back because if they can do that, they can breathe and they can call for help. And um, sort of going back to a, a statement you just made to Emily, most drownings are not when a toddler sneaks out of the house and manages to get to the pool. It's actually where the parents have gone to the pool with the child and maybe they just run inside to grab a soda or they get distracted on the phone. Um, so they happen most of the time while there's supervision going on. And mm-hmm. so if a child can roll over and float and call for help, most of the time a parent is then close enough to respond to that. Um, and it gives them – it buys them that extra time that, that can turn a what could be a very dangerous situation into just a slightly scary one. How, how long does it take to teach a youngster these skills? We have uh, – at that age, it can take a few months potentially to teach a, a really small child because you're – you know, obviously you're communicating mostly with muscle memory. Um, but we have children under one year old who have learned how to float on their own. Uh, so it certainly can be done with very young children. Um, and like we said, the stats are skewed towards those young children. So we want to get them started as quickly as possible to make sure that they have those skills so that if there is that, that just momentary lapse in supervision that the – child knows how to, to create a safe situation to buy the parent time to then go in and, and help them. And you run something called the British Swim School, yes. is that correct? Yep. And how does that work? So we, we start with kids as young as three months old. Uh, we focus on, like I said, the survival skills first. Uh, our founder, Rita Goldberg, was one of the pioneers of the back float approach. Um, so we use very fun, gentle methods, small classes uh, to help those children learn really critical safety skills. Uh, and then we, from there, we then teach them more of the traditional swimming once we know that they 
are able to keep themselves safe. You know, we're talking primarily about uh, backyard swimming pools uh, in this particular situation, but there are other pools as well, and then I'll do this to, to you. What, what about municipal pools? I mean, you have a lot more people there, but a lot more distractions as well, and this is a problem in some municipal pools. Absolutely. It's a problem wherever there's water. Yeah. Um, so I know the municipalities do a great job at making sure that our pools are um, safe by their standards. Uh, so they do things as making sure that if we do require lifeguards, that the lifeguards are there, um, that we have a fence around the pool, that we have uh, safety procedures set in place, such as a shepherd's hook to pull someone or give them um, that leash almost um, to hold on to to bring them into safety um, could be also a ring buoy. Um, but, you know, it's about getting that supervision and making sure that that water is safe. So even though there is a lifeguard, there are situations where at lifeguarded pools we do have children um, or even adults that do drown. Uh, it's a difficult situation, but um, we want to do everything that we can to prevent those. Steffi, how are your lifeguards trained? Uh, well, many of our lifeguards come from municipal pools. And, and if I can add to that, you know, there are responsibilities for visitors of municipal pools. I mean, lifeguards do do an excellent job there, as well as are many state parks and lakes and beaches and other waterfront environments. But a lifeguard is not a babysitter. So when people come to a pool or any environment that has uh, an attractive danger like water, it's important that people know the rules. And it's important that lifeguards let, let make clear those expectations that any parent who is bringing a child is within a step and a reach of that child wearing a swimsuit in the water, engaged with that young person so that the active supervision is provided by the parent. Um, and, and then in addition, the lifeguard provides the order and the structure for the entire, for the entire facility. Our life, to answer your question, our lifeguards are trained. Um, they're trained by, uh, under the standards of the American Red Cross. So they're all American Red Cross certified lifeguards. Approximately half of our staff are also lifeguarding instructors. And then the United States Life Saving Association, which provides the nation's curriculum for uh, non-pool uh, open water training, uh, we follow their guidelines for the events that we do that are in um, lake, mostly in this area of the country, lakefront environments. Because um, we do a number of adult events, open water swims and triathlons and things like that. So we have, uh, we like to call our lifeguards Red Cross Plus, mm -hmm. so so that they're prepared for any uh, any pool or non-pool situation. Lisa, where is your activism on this issue taking you, and how far have you come with it? Well, when uh, Nicholas died uh, in 1982, we had, Birch was five years old, and we had a three-and-a-half-year-old and a, a one-month-old. Uh, and moving forward in the face of that with three young children was all absorbing. Mm -hmm. uh, we have recently gotten reinvolved because of Birch's uh, involvement with British Swim School and my seeing what I thought mm -hmm. was what I think is a wonderful program and my conviction that if our Nicholas had had British Swim School, we'd still have it. Mm -hmm. um, so we have 
we are becoming re-engaged. We would love to, my husband just went to the National Drowning Prevention Alliance meeting um, a couple of months ago. We have joined a group called Parents United to Prevent Drowning. Um, and I would love to see, as with the four of us, we have talked about this, some sort of coalition in the St. Louis region that would raise awareness. One mm -hmm. of the statistics um, that came out of a report by an organization called Safe Kids asked parents, having asked parents what was their primary mm -hmm. fear for their children's safety, and only 1% <clears throat> said drowning. Mm -hmm. That's despite those numbers, which are horrendous. So um, I would... I would love to. It's been a, a gift to have Birch reinvolved or involved in this, and us then become reinvolved. And I would love to raise awareness in the St. Louis area and have a drowning prevention coalition in this region. Right. We have a, a, a an email from Madeline in St. Louis. Uh, writes this question. She has young children and writes, "My neighbor just my neighbor. This is now just installed an above ground pool, but there is no fence around it." Do I have any recourse to request that they put a fence around it? Seems yes. to me the answer has <laughs> got to be yes. Uh, Steffi? Yes. Um, well, it depends on what county she lives in, but most places do require that any uh, that any property with a pool has a fence around that pool. Now, the fence does not have to enclose the pool separate from the home that owns the pool. Um, but, yes, your neighbors uh, do have every right to um, – you can contact your local health department, your zoning organization, and say, my neighbor's just installed a pool, and there's no fence, and, um, and, and they'll seven, get a visit. 17% of drownings occur in above-ground pools. 9% occur in those little inflatable pools. Mm -hmm. So people need to be aware that those are a real danger as well. Emily, it seems to me this is another issue that has to be addressed, and that is uh, we don't all have pools, and our neighbor or someone down the street might have the pool. And that can be called a, an attractive nuisance, I suppose, and, and an attraction in any case for young kids in the neighborhood. How do we deal with that part of the equation? Absolutely. You know, I I also want to bring Steffi into this, you know, as we talk about that supervision and getting some barriers in. It definitely is an attraction. It's a fun one. Um, I think we all can think of a hot summer day when we've enjoyed taking a nice cool dip in that pool. Um, but ma making sure that, you know, it is safe. Um, having those barriers, having that fence up. Um, if you are going to have people over, having a designated person to watch the pool when there's someone in it, um, and that person is not distracted, they are not uh, inebriated in any way, whether that be with alcohol, maybe they are on even prescription medication um, that can inhibit their motor function, reaction time, um, even sight. Um, so making sure that you know all those all of those things are kind of wrapped in together. And if you are going to have a party, you know Steffi does a fantastic job with her backyard lifeguards, yeah. and um, they're. A very wonderful and easy uh, group to work with. Bryce, what about devices? I mean, water wings, uh, inner tubes, whatever. Something's buoyant to keep uh, a youngster from going under. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and Emily and Stephanie, you can probably talk about this a bit more as well. But our suggestion always to parents mm -hmm. is that unless it's Coast Guard approved, you should not be using it as a safety device. Yeah. So anything, as Emily likes to say, anything that can be inflated can be deflated. 
Um, and kids have an amazing way of sneaking out of uh, those kind of objects or rolling over, uh, you know, that sort of inner tube idea. Unfortunately, if they tip over it, then is holding them upside down. Um, so you need to be very careful of those. And even with the Coast Guard-approved uh, life devices, the, the life jackets, the sort of the puddle jumpers that are popular now, um, none of them are a substitute for the other elements of the, the safety sure. regime. So lessons, supervision, safety devices, fences, all of them need to be taken together. I, I don't know why I'm insisting on calling you Birch when your name is Bryce, but forgive okay. me. It is, it, is it is Birch. It is Birch. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm really confused now. Um, I was going to add that, that you were talking, asking Emily, what do you do about the neighborhood pool? Um, one of the things Birch's program does is every few weeks a survival week. They do it three, four times a year. And they drill into those kids' heads you don't swim without an adult. Mm. So even if there's sure. two doors down a pool, they shouldn't go without that, an adult. That, that should all seem, uh, seem very obvious. We've been talking about pools, but uh, you know, there, as has been alluded to, I think, by Emily, there are, there are ponds, there are lakes, there are rivers, there are creeks, there's an ocean. Uh, you know, how do we deal with, with that part of it? Let's take the pool out of the equation. Any good advice for people here? You know, um, one of the things that always strikes me is uh, the number of drownings every year at Babbler State Park. Mm -hmm. Babbler State Park does not have lifeguards, and they have a a ton of shoreline there. And the messaging that you get at Babbler State Park, which advertises on its website that swimming is allowed and charges you for parking, I believe, to go to the beach there, there's a big sign when you arrive It says, people die here. Don't be next. And it's so alarmist, the sign. And you look past the sign and you see people with their beach chairs and their beer hanging out. And and it, it seems to be um, – you, you look at it and it, the, the thought psychologically is, well, they don't mean me. Those people look fine. Everybody's fine. And, um, and I think there needs to be, instead of something that's so extreme – something that's a little bit more educational. Install some safety and rescue poles at these locations if you're not going to have lifeguards or provide some sort of safety education, whether it be in signage uh, or or personnel to, you know, to offer that, that information. Because yes, people, you know, in residential pools and even in uh, municipal pools, there is there's always some education that's available there, either by the homeowner or by the lifeguard that's on duty. When you go to a to a public space um, that is open and free, you're getting any any individual, regardless, you know, without knowledge of the exposure or the dangers to water. Uh, so they tend to be more dangerous. They draw in people without access to other more structured environments. Edu- education is the key, clearly. Yeah, clearly. exactly. So education in terms of educating the adults that they need to have supervision in those, in those scenarios, um, educating parents on uh, CPR skills so that if there is an incident that they're prepared to uh, give assistance. And then, of course, the swim lessons to try and avoid the, the situations happening in the first place. But a lot of education is is the solution to those kind of situations. And uh, if I can add something very here, quickly, please. Um, most drowning prevention agencies refer to something called layers of protection, and we've addressed all of them here. You know, preventing access to water, preparing for access to water, um, providing supervision, the availability of wearable flotation, Coast Guard approved flotation aids. So all of those things 
cooperate. It's not any one thing that's guaranteed to save a child. It's all of them together. Right. We'll have to stop it right there. Uh, Something for all of us to think about this time of year. It is getting warmer, as we are noticing. Thank you so much, Lisa McMullen, for being with us. Birch McMullen, thank you. Finally got your name right. Sorry about that earlier. Uh, Steph McCormick, thank you for being with us. And Emily Woodchick, thank you also for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Subject. Thank you. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Don Marsh. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.